are the charges? We have proof that you colluded with Klingon extremists to plant a Veruvian bomb in the Pakled capital city. My God, when did this happen? Today, 0900, while you were conveniently on a mission. I'm sure just as planned. She had nothing to do with this! That is for a tribunal to decide. I'll kill you! Stop! Let them do their job. But, Mom... Captain! That's an order! We have the truth on our side, and I don't want the crew finding out until we know more. Congratulations, Captain! On behalf of the crew... <gasps> Transfer complete. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton plugging his blowhole. <laughs> and we're here this week to talk about the finale of Season 2 Lower Decks. First, first contact. Yeah, this was the adventure in which uh, Freeman is told she's going to get a, a brand new ship. Uh, her commission will be shifted elsewhere, and uh, I guess the senior crew isn't so happy about that. But in the meantime, there is a big crisis involving one captain. Yes, Captain Sonia Gomez Cam. Um, I will say this. Uh, this episode feels like perhaps the trekkiest episode of them all that they've done so far in New Trek. I just got kind of the classic Star Trek vibes in the character-based adventures. Maybe not as many laughs as I got last week or the week before here in Lower Decks, but I didn't care. I'm really seeing more and more. Like, I don't really need laughs when it comes to this show. It's more the hangout factor, being around these characters who I really like, and this finale really did it for me. What's your initial take on First, first Contact? <laughs> It was like the makers of Lower Decks looked at Discovery, looked at Picard, and were like, F it, we'll do it. <laughs> and just decided to actually tell really well done Star Trek storytelling. <laughs> yeah. Like, there is obviously a dearth of competent Star Trek storytelling. So you know what? I guess we got to do it. And so you have an episode, like you said, I was not like laughing my way through this episode. There's some fun bits I'm sure we'll touch on throughout the uh, review. But overall, I was just like, what an effective cliffhanger, a really fun way to bring back a legacy character, an interesting problem the characters have to solve in a way, um, you know, think of the movie Rogue One, a Star Wars story, where you have to lower the shields and it falls down to each member of that team and each one has a function that serves the greater whole. That's the type of storytelling they did here, where every character in the Lower Decks team had something to do in terms of solving the problem. And it all played out very classically, very Star Trek-y. You had character dynamics throughout. You had journeys going on emotionally. And it all, you know, wound up with a bow on top as a perfect Star Trek episode. Now, not perfect quality-wise, as in one of the all-time greats necessarily, but just in terms of being an, encaps an encapsulation of what we want from Star Trek. You know, I think they struggled out of the gates. They were telling too many stories, very disparate stories with different characters. It wasn't working for us, but they really found their groove, I think, by episode six, seven, and they just kind of took it from there. It, it happened similar last year, about the halfway mark. They did a very similar thing. I suspect, based on this cliffhanger, which came, is this the first time we've seen to be continued in this new era of Star Trek so far? Okay, now you have to jog my memory in case I'm forgetting because there was the Such Sweet Sorrow Part 1 and 2 on Discovery. I don't remember if they actually put a To Be Continued, though. I don't recall seeing that. And and what about the uh, Mirror Universe episode in Season 3, uh, the kind of send-off for Giorgio? Was there a To Be Continued as that was a two-parter? Oh, I can't remember. Like, they were very clear two-parters on Discovery. We've had a couple now. But I don't remember if they actually threw up the, you know, classic to be continued um, text. Did you just use the word throw up with regards to Star Trek Discovery uh, Season 3? <laughs> I did indeed. <laughs> well then. Yeah, uh, so I, this, well, this is definitely the first, like, real kind of classic cliffhanger that we've had so far in this new era of Star Trek. And this one worked for me. The one it reminded me most of, and it worked on kind of a different level, though, was Redemption Part 1. Yeah. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, just with the stakes of um, a series finale. And I think you said that maybe they learned the wrong lesson from Will You Take My Hand Season 1 Discovery and watch. It was such a deflated kind of 
lacking energy <laughs> sort of uh, finale that they decided every single finale after that it's going to have to like have non-stop action which you and i kind of get bored of after a while and here you know we, we've got more of that kind of uh, redemption had this moment where the stakes are Worf's future with his crew his future with starfleet and his future with his culture and it all culminates with him walking through the corridors after taking off his comm badge and being saluted by the entire crew on his way to the transporter pad. We had a similar moment here, except Freeman's been arrested. Yeah. Uh, and it's uh, it, it actually cracked me up that it was Boimler <laughs> that organized this send-off. And, like, that could be not be more humiliating for her. Maybe she won't soon forget. But these are real stakes. These are emotional stakes. Uh, I, and it's because I care about the characters, not because I care about the pew-pew-pew. And there are some very exciting action sequences through this with the Arcades, um, you know, uh, plummeting towards the uh, the, the new planet planet uh llama or whatever it was called i, I i'm blanking on it right now <laughs> you're greatly invested in the name of that planet huh <laughs> yeah well that, i i'm invested in culture that uh likes to throw back the sauce like they do so there you go <laughs> but i am 100 percent with you and that like as a you know season ender a cliffhanger i was so much more excited as this episode ended to see where this was gonna go than i was anything that like picard or discovery have really ended on um, except for, uh, the end of C, well, you know what, the end of season two discovery was very effective. I guess I'm really just, um, knocking season one, uh, season three discovery, which I, I don't even remember if there was any sort of, I guess it was just them on the ship in new uniforms that have been quickly retired in favor of new brighter uniforms. But <laughs> That's true. I guess that was the actual cliffhanger, but, um, if you want to call it a cliffhanger. So, like, just a more recent trek. It hasn't ended Cam, in a way Cam, that- Cam, getting gelato at the space station, that is a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like just the, the last couple of seasons of live action trek have not left me like in feverish anticipation for what's to come whereas like this one i'm genuinely interested i mean look i think we can assume freeman will get her post back but i'm interested in seeing a tribunal on star trek lord x i'm also really interested to see who is the captain temporarily i think that could be a really interesting bit of legacy casting or even just a new character that could be really fun uh, maybe it's one of the cetaceans. Uh, they get to come up to the bridge in some sort of like uh, a large tank or something like that. Sure, sure. Like some sort of walking water suit. Yeah. yeah. But I can almost picture kind of what the finale or what the season premiere is going to be like next year in which we're going to have the Lower Decks crew kind of banding together to prove her innocence. Uh, we talked about uh, it in last episode uh, that the Klingon Tog whether or not he'd be reappearing, but it seems as if he is going to be playing a part um, somehow in uh, season three, maybe just one episode. Uh, the Packlets seem to be involved moving forward. Their, their planet looks to be, uh, well, hurting quite a bit, so we'll see what kind of <laughs> antagonist they'll continue on to be, but don't count them out just yet. We, we've seen worse with the Romulans, and they've uh, continued on in their antagonistic forms, but it's just fascinating because... One of the problems that we had, I think, with all the seasons of Discovery, as as well as uh, Picard, is like, okay, so what is the season finale building to? Like, they keep wanting to mm -hmm. tell us, the writers keep wanting to tell us, like, ooh, there is a payoff in store. Don't you worry, there is a payoff. Cam, I, I, just these payoffs, whether it's the identity of the Red Angel, how they resolve the Klingon War, um, whether or not... Um, robot demons from another dimension are going to infest the <laughs> galaxy um I, th these payoffs have been kind of turdy like i i would I'd call them uh you know confidently like turds you know what i think the most genius aspect of lower decks this season was and i guess tailing off of last season too but making the packlids the adversary because had they said you know what we have a really great romulan story we want to do you're really boxed in by kind of um you know the higher ups demands for what they want to do with the romulans in the future by choosing the Packlids, a comedically it's really really effective they're a really fun species to exploit for comedy but also you can blow up their planet and no one else is going to care it's like yeah do whatever you want with these aliens i think that's something they should be looking at going forward i mean we have said we would love to see some of the you know classic animated series aliens get a boosted role from the original animated series but other kind of crazy alien species, like bring them on because you can take really wild swings with your storytelling 
Whereas, like, I don't know, look at what have they done with like Vulcans and Romulans and Klingons on these live action shows that has been like genuinely, you know, interesting. I guess the um, final, you know, the unification effort succeeding was something, but it's not like it was an episode that we walked out, you know, thoroughly satisfied with. I believe we referred to it as a mock time, except without any of the fun parts. You did, yes. Uh, let's give yourself the credit for that genius, because yeah, like that was a good line. But it's not like you're getting really interesting payoffs. Same with the Borg. Like I don't know, I don't know what was going on with the Borg. But what um, is her you know, plan, getting... Cam? What is her plan? As I repeated ad infinitum throughout the first half of uh, season one of Picard, before realizing that yes, uh, Soji had no plan. I just think these like heavily supervised aspects of Star Trek. Lower Decks has been really smart to move away from because you can really just, t you know, take the story in the directions you want to tackle without worrying if Picard season three is going to be about the Packlids. Yeah, so I'm thinking about like other aliens at the periphery that might be worth uh, bringing back in the fold again. And, you know, just off the top of my head, I will go back with inspiration from uh, this episode title, uh, the original First Contact from Star Trek The Next Generation. Remember those aliens 30 years ago, you know, the, the TNG crew were scoping that out, seeing if, you know, they're, they're right at the precipice of uh, hitting that warp barrier, but they decided they just weren't ready yet, or at least the uh, leader of the planet decided um, that there'd be chaos. What if those aliens returned? Maybe B.B. New Earth could lend her voice again somehow, uh, and maybe Jonathan Frakes could be in that uh, episode too. But um, it, it's that would be kind of fun stuff that, you know, like Kurtzman and company really wouldn't care about. Yeah, go ahead. The, those first contact uh, aliens. Yeah, uh, have fun with them. See where they are 30 years uh, from now when maybe their society is ready to make, well, second contact at this point. And we also saw that, you know, they did a revisit to the planet from Return of the Ar uh, Archons. And it was like they backslid back into being controlled by Landru. And again, like... Kurtzman doesn't care about something like that, you know, but had they said, you know, there's been rapid changes in the Borg, suddenly they go, well, hold on, that might bump up against what we want to do in Picard or something like that. Yeah. Hey, can, can we talk about Sonia Gomez for a, a second here, Cam? Um, of course, yeah. I understand the significance of bringing back, you know, one of those old school lower decks from the TNG era and, and showing where she is nowadays. Um, what did you make of the performance, the, the the vocal work of the original actress, uh, Alicia mm. Naff, returning, you know, 30 plus years later. I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, so I was interested in seeing this character back. I thought it was a really fun outside the box choice. Uh, I liked how she had a little moment with an awkward crew member. But this was one of the worst cases I've heard on Lower Decks of very clear actor on Zoom voice acting, where it just doesn't feel like they're in the same room as the other characters. I got that kind of vibe from it. It felt kind of awkward. It felt as if the director wasn't giving her direction. And it felt as if, like, she, she's an actress. She knows how to act, but voice acting is a different beast. And mm -hmm. you can tell by just watching um, kind of the behind-the-scenes stuff, these actors know that they really need to, you know, no pun intended, but animate their voices and, and really project their voices in a way. Uh, Frakes was even doing that in last uh, season's uh, finale where his voice is just kind of booming in a way that you wouldn't necessarily hear Riker do, especially in an episode like Nepenthe from uh, Star Trek Picard. And I just, I, I just <laughs> wish like she was given some like very solid direction um, from whoever is behind the scenes. It really reminded me of that episode of Simpsons. You remember Homer Palooza where they had all of the, um, the uh the bands uh featured uh from like the mid 90s camp okay that's not the one where he goes to rock camp right like it's the one where he puts on like a festival or something it's where uh the cannon shoots him in the belly and um it's yeah like uh hi i'm uh homer simpson uh from uh and they're like hey i'm smashing pumpkins and like no one from smashing Com pumpkins can act it's like hi i'm from smashing pumpkins you know, it's like, is that mm -hmm. kind of acting? Like, I, I don't want to disparage the actress. I don't think it's her fault. I, I think it's the director of this episode. And just voice acting is a different science that I, I don't know what her background is in terms of voice work, but I think it's probably a direction issue. And uh, it just, I don't know. As you said, Frakes really embraced the animated form. And I think that's something they should do more so. I thought actually um, Robert Duncan McNeil did as well. 
with Tom Paris. It wasn't as uh, larger than life as um, as Riker, um, but his Tom Paris was definitely, um, it felt like more of an animated, fun character than what you'd get typically on Voyager. Are those the three, uh, Gomez, Paris, and, and Riker, are those the only three um, kind of legacy characters um, that we've seen so far? Or am I missing like one more? No. Well, there's Alice Krieger as the Borg Queen, but they played that fairly straight. Yeah, but it did, didn't it sound like she was kind of doing a bit of a Zoom session as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah to a certain degree, yeah. yeah. She didn't seem as sensual as she did in, say, First Contact or uh, Endgame. No, it it is, I think, that, honestly, a bit of that Zoom recording and that sometimes it's tough to get really strong performances remotely. And also, you hear it so often that... Uh, voice actors get very frustrated with how studios just want to hire you know live action actors because they have more name value and then a lot of them don't have the skills that voice actors have and i think you see that in some of the limitations we've seen just in bringing back some of these legacy characters yeah i I know that you were incredibly upset about uh chris pratt getting the job over an italian american uh cam so you know (laughs) I, i i'm sorry that that brought up bad memories for you that's the cause I'm really rallying behind these days. Um, you'll see me at the uh, on the corner of Broadway in Vancouver with a sandwich board on. You're like a Roller Girl. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Those from Vancouver, they know who Roller Girl is, but um... not the one in Boogie Nights. Not the one in no, Boogie Nights. No. Um, I, I wouldn't mind Al Pacino being uh, Super Mario. There you go. That, that would solve every problem. I mean, or De Niro. He'll slum it nowadays. Why not? And we're talking about the live action version, right? Yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. of course. The <laughs> De Niro is Mario, and then uh, Pacino is Luigi. I would watch that movie. I can guarantee yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um. So okay, you, you uh, uh, we're, we're talking about like what it means uh, for you know the the season premiere who might be temporarily in command, and the one line that I got uh, that was just had me cracking up was like uh, a Mariner concerned that uh, if Freeman goes that we could end up with some weirdo with a writing crop. Uh huh. That shout out to Captain Styles. I, I I mean just just a chef's kiss from me right right then and there. That was the one note I made where I underlined it. <laughs> I was so <laughs> excited for a Captain Styles mention because you and I have joked about him ever since we covered Star Trek 3. And what a fun character. And what a forgotten character. Like, no one mentions Captain Styles. We hear a lot of uh, Harriman uh, mockery, but people do not bring up Captain Styles nearly enough. It's kind of amazing, like how you can just create very memorable characters just by giving them very specific traits in a very short time. And uh, like, it's kind of silly, but can we we uh, watch Venom? Let there be carnage. And recall the the detective had a hearing aid, and mm-hmm. I was just like, oh, that's interesting. He's got a hearing aid. Like, I'll I'll at least remember that. Like, it kind of pops out of my memory versus just these kind of blank slate characters where they don't give any sort of nuances to. Yeah, and it's not like Styles was like a dynamic personality in the movie. He's actually relatively forgettable and also portrayed as somewhat incompetent, especially when compared against Kirk. But it's the writing crop you really remember. But it's interesting that they make that mention and then just a moment later they depart the the giant space base and you can tell that Mike McMahon, the, the writer of this episode, the creator of the series, he just loves the majesty of that space base departure from Star Trek Three, the uh, search for mm-hmm. Spock, because that also involves like an Excelsior class starship. I don't know the exact class of what the Archimedes was. Didn't they say Excelsior? Or did I mishear that? Okay, I didn't know if it was like a refit. Like it definitely like a uh, looked like a refit version of the Excelsior, and, and that's what I, I I wasn't clear on. Um, and but it, it was just kind of you could tell it that like he was kind of like pulling from that moment from uh, Star Trek Three, and this isn't the first time we've visited uh, <laughs> that uh, starbase, and so it was just kind of cool. Like uh, he keeps going back to that well, and it just makes for something visually that that you don't often see in like new star trek right now where i'm I'm really generally far more impressed by the visuals i'm getting from lower decks because it's cinematic in a way where i i i can appreciate how much thought they're putting into this and i I, it's not to say they don't put thought into um the visual flares that you see within discovery of picard but it's mostly in my head i'm just like oh yeah i could figure out how they did that they had a computer and uh you know they generated it through cgi Voila. But here, it's kind of the animation style. It, it takes this kind of, this sort of TLC that maybe um, 
you don't necessarily see with the other new Star Trek series. Well, and it also strives for grandeur, which is something that all of the Berman era shows did, as well as the original series when it had shots of the ship going through space. Would you say that that's something they even really try to do in Discovery very often, or Picard for that matter? I don't know that they really do. Well, <laughs> I'll go back to another um, season finale, and that's in which uh, the 1701 appeared at the very end of Star Trek Discovery season yeah. one. And, and that that was a moment of grandeur, but it was, again, it was one of those kind of legacy moments that they're trying to uh, you know, get the old nostalgia pills going for all the audience members. Yeah, I mean, I think of the shot also of Discovery flying, you know, into the great unknown at the end of season two. Like, that was a really, you know, grand shot. But just in your standard episode of Discovery or Picard, where it's just the ship flying through space or whatever, it doesn't feel like you're getting these big sort of dramatic sweeping shots that just stick in the mind and give the ships the personality they require. Like, when you watch Voyager, you walk away with a vibe as to what that ship means, like, it means something when you see that ship just flying through the Delta Quadrant. I don't have that sort of vibe yet off the other live action shows. I think part of it is the CG does look somewhat shaky sometimes. Uh, it's improved in Discovery over time. Um, season one was rougher. But yeah, it, there's more of, I guess, maybe a weightlessness. And I w just wonder if with the animation on Lower Decks, they are um, not playing it as weightless. Like they're putting effort into making these ships feel like they actually have mass to them. Well, you can just tell how much you know Mike McMahon is drawn to that TNG era uh, and kind of the visual flares that go along with it as well. Um, so, uh, <laughs> so I'm curious. So that maybe uh, we have been fawning over this episode, but but a couple things that that I, I might poke at though is with regards to um, I don't know. Doesn't meaning of Shax's death in season one kind of <laughs> like. It was supposed to have like kind of this big sort of, um, you know, tug at the heartstrings. And then it was never really explained. Uh, they did an episode about like, oh, you could never know how senior officers return. And I was like, okay, that, I guess that's like a, a joke conceit, pointing out a trope. But then they never did anything with it. And you pointed out like, well, it doesn't necessarily take away from the significance of his death if they do something like they did in uh, Star Trek 2 to Star Trek 3. I'm like, okay, that's a good point. But I, I don't feel as if we ever got that throughout. I, I kept my mind open throughout all of season two with whatever they wanted to do with Shaxx. And I, I kind of feel cheated um, based on what was delivered to us last season. Well, it feels like, and when, yeah, when I said that, that was just as we were covering the episode where he returned, it feels like ultimately it was kind of a hand wave away of the end of season one. It didn't feel like he came back and they had a real story to tell there or genuine things to touch on in terms of the character's changes. Like, I would still say he feels as one dimensional at the end of season two as he did really at the end of season one. It's not like they delved deeper into that character. It was more just like, I don't know. They must have really liked the actor. Like, he must be the greatest guy in the world because they were just like, we've just got to hand wave this big death scene. Well, I kind of assume that maybe, like, if Shax was going to be gone, but we did see the actor's um, name in the credits the first episode or two of the season. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe they're just going to give that actor kind of a, a new a character to voice for. But uh, that wasn't the case. So, like you said, they definitely wanted to keep the guy around. I just wish there's a bit more of a payoff by the time we got to the finale you know and i, I know people are going to be like well maybe you're overthinking like an animated comedy but it's one of those moments that worked for me in you know the season one finale and i, I just feel a little bit cheated um at this point that's all should have just brought on his twin brother i would have been like oh that's kind of goofy and, and that seems like a lower decks thing to do it's a comedy right it's, it's like yeah yeah. I can buy that. <laughs> we already have like double Boimlers and double Rikers, so I could understand the double Shacks. And make like the brother, you know, twin brother uh, Shacks, like the exact opposite. And that could be kind of fun as well, yeah. especially if he looks the same but acts completely different. Yeah, I could buy that. Um, so, Cam, one of the throwaway lines that I really loved, though, was uh, did you hear um, Billups cursing when they were trying to get the, uh, the <laughs> hull plating off? And he exclaimed, dragon's blood and uh, yeah. like just him being from that fantasy planets um that got a, a good laugh out of me but that moment where they had all of the hull plating off and you just kind of see the uh, the cerritos just kind of bare back in it uh so to speak um that was just so majestic as well speaking of you know it's just kind of the grandeur that this show is bringing uh to the table um just from a visual perspective 
that was a real screensaver moment or not screensaver, but like wallpaper. Cause that was a beautiful shot that I, again, was just like, wow, they really understand the majesty of Star Trek ships and how to convey that to the audience. So I, I thought it was a fun solution to the problem. It's also something we've never seen before. And it really delivered. Like, we've seen a lot of Star Trek episodes where they have to do some sort of maneuver or whatever, you know, to save the day. But, like, this one worked for me because they were coming up with creative solutions that I just haven't seen exhausted and finding fun ways to go about it with character dynamics. I mean, I really like the scene where it's Boimler and Mariner fighting over, you know, who's going to swim down and, uh, you know, remove the final panel. And it, it was a way of exposing, you know, a character flaw in Mariner of this, I need to save the day every time. And them saying, hey, we're your family. We can handle this. You go solve your own problems. It actually was showing character growth over the course of this episode through action, which is something that, like, I mean, that does definitely not happen very much on Discovery. Uh, well, except the moment, uh, was it uh, uh, Awashikin who had to decide whether or not to, like, take <laughs> off with the oxygen? And she was just, like, staring at everybody, like, kind of asphyxiate. She was going to die if she didn't uh, save the ship. And she was just, like, staring, like, saying, like, I can't leave. I can't leave. And I was like, oh, my God, you have to. We know you will. Just do it. Like, this is not working for me dramatically. But it also wasn't tied to anything we'd been exploring with that character exactly. through the season. Like, we've seen the growth of Mariner from episode one right to this point, And it's going to continue on. Her relationship with her mother is different now than it was in season one. It feels like I'm getting genuine growth through these characters. Boimler and the relationship with Mariner is different. The way she, um, you know, when she befriends Jennifer at the end and says, you know, regarding Boimler, like, isn't he great? You wouldn't get that in season one. And it just made me write down a note. Um, Tyler, what's the journey of <laughs> Burnham and Tilly been like over three seasons? Okay, so they were reluctant roommates, and then they kind of, like, Burnham kind of taught her self-confidence to a certain degree, and then Tilly got a new best friend with an alien fungus, <laughs> <laughs> their relationship's been downhill from there. Cam, I don't know. They've talked about cake. Yeah, they yeah, talked about cake yeah, once. Cake there is was eternal. That. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Lower Decks is a show that has 22 minutes to tell its stories or whatever, 25 minutes. Discovery has like double that. Why is it struggling so bad? Whereas they've just, through very clean storytelling, managed to make these character arcs feel earned and evolve in a way that's genuinely interesting and fun to watch. Well, Cam, it's bizarre because you bring up the run times and it's like, you know, like Lower Decks has much less time for digressions yet they spend much more time doing those digressions with characters that make them seem more human and, and relatable whereas discovery it's more just like plot point plot point plot point contrived emotional reaction plot point plot point i'm just kind of like eh, that's not really what's getting me invested especially it's not just characters but it's character dynamics and how they interact with each other that's why i thought this stuff going on with uh stamets and culber and adira last season mm -hmm. that was my favorite stuff though because it, it, it just it was all about the interpersonal relationships going on the tension that was there and also kind of like the, this very like kind of loving relationship uh, as well and, and it throwing jet reno to the mix actually there was that one moment where you know stamets and reno were arguing and somebody's like do you guys always do this and then they just kind of put their arms on their hips and uh, hands on their hips and they're like <laughs> we're just like this and i just thought oh my god that is so cheesy that is just like you, you, like you're like you, you you show you don't tell like you just like you don't get people to comment on it, it just it takes you out of, it rips you out of the series and like that that's sort of the cringe stuff that uh we saw even with some of the good parts of Discovery last season. Yeah, there's good parts in Discovery. I don't want to say they're completely doing it wrong, because I do think there have been some dynamics and characters that really work, but it often feels like it strives for operatic in terms of these like character moments. Like you can't have a trend, you know, a evolution of a character over a season. It has to happen in a moment that's hugely pumped up with tears and dramatic music. And it's like, okay, that works for some franchises, but with Star Trek storytelling, it's really awkward. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, if we're thinking about kind of the character stuff, though, was this Freeman's best episode yet of the series? Yeah, I think it's the one... Well, she this was probably the one where she did the most, right? Like, she's had some strong showcase episodes where it's her and Mariner pay, uh, paired together, but it felt like this one was really putting her front and center in a way they don't usually. 
even just seeing her kind of loosen up and just get drunk after first first contact like that was just <laughs> one of those little moments although you do the math um she was clearly like hammered when she was arrested by starfleet security so uh that sucks and cam you know how we've talked about how boimler kind of looks like me yeah um what do you think about that uh that starfleet security officer that arrested her oh oh I didn't even think about that. It looks that. as if he was modeled off me, like based on like a, a picture that they found on my LinkedIn or something like that. Like I was just like, I, I, I was cracking up just through my own narcissism, of course. But um, that one gave me a laugh. Well, we know that the animation studio, uh, Titmouse, uh, is located in Vancouver. Have they somehow found like photos of you in their like <laughs> random street people archives and are just modeling the characters off of you? <laughs> I, I'm in the random street people archives? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they just walked around Vancouver, took a photo of people, you know, on Granville or just walking this around and we're like, great, we can use these for characters. <laughs> okay, you know what I'm going to do, Camp? I'm going to calculate uh, how far a walk it is from my office in uh, Vancouver to uh, Titmouse Animation. Um, let's see. Uh, if you're on <laughs> foot, if you are on foot, yeah, it is seven minutes away mm, so, the conspiracy um, i don't know we may have something here yeah okay so maybe they've seen me around the neighborhood it's because like there um there's a bunch of restaurants in between that maybe i go to for lunch maybe some uh, cam i the, the fact that we're even like thinking about this is uh the narcissism <laughs> the narcissism here but um well i i was joking but you're taking this very seriously i'm so. literally calculating <laughs> walking distances <laughs> Um, speaking of conspiracies, it looks like we may have the breadcrumbs for something going on with Rutherford, who we saw here yeah. was having glitches in yeah. the old Matrix, and uh, had to purge some memories. Although I had to question, um, his like memory usage is like filling up already. He's only had this like uh, this revised implant or whatever for like you know one season, and already it's full. I'm like that doesn't that's not promising for long term. Has the guy never heard of cloud computing? <laughs> Uh, but we did get this glimpse of two shadowy figures implanting something. So that could pay off. Well, okay. Um, <laughs> do you think it's uh, Bejazel, um ripping eyeballs out of people <laughs> once again? Probably not Bejazel, uh, But I, I, I'd like to think, because, you know, the first time you see something like that, I think if you're a Star Trek fan, you immediately go Section 31. I hope they have something really funny up their sleeves, like something clever, kind of like a Packlid type concept where... We don't see it coming, but it can pay off in a fun way. Yeah, I, I hope they don't drag out whatever this mystery is. Like, um, it, it, look, I, I hope it's not Section 31, but if they do something kind of cool with it, I'll go for it. We, it like, Rutherford's history, his own personal history, it's it's a little bit of a mystery as well. Like, we know way more about Mariner, mm -hmm. Freeman, and, uh, you know, uh, Boimler as well. I, I wouldn't mind diving a little bit deeper into uh, Rutherford's own history. And um, speaking of his uh, partner in crime, um, what do you make of the decision to move Tendi uh, out of the sick bay and into kind of this uh, senior science training program? Conflicted. I like the idea of this character, you know, being more on the bridge, involved in the action. But I really enjoyed the relationship with Dr. Tana. And I want to see that continue. So I hope they can find ways to work Tana into, you know, stories in a significant way, the way they did in season two. But uh, yeah, I guess I have to see how it plays out. What do you think was the decision behind this? Like, what, what, why do you think they uh, decided to do this with Tendi? I wonder if it's because they were having trouble um, connecting medical stories involving Tendi to the larger stories they were doing in an episode and they wanted a way to just work her into what's going on on the bridge because that tends to be what drives the episode more so than what's going on in sickbay because a lot of her episodes felt like these digressions that were happening in episodes as opposed to being involved in the a story it's interesting because like medical doctors on the ships they've never had a lack of uh, utilitarian purposes on any of the Star Trek series. They're always busy, busy, busy. But with Tendi, it's, um, she's been more on the periphery. Uh, like, I get what you're saying. So if they bump her into science, then yeah, I think there are more opportunities for her to be involved with um, stuff, even if there's not like kind of a, a medical emergency going on in the ship. Because otherwise, you know, it seems as if she has um, less of an 
active role, you know, episode to episode. And it seems as if this decision will make her that much of an active player as well. Yeah, like it feels like when they want to give Tindy a lot to do, it's kind of these side mission things that aren't really related to her job on the ship. You know, the one where she had to go get the statue, uh, the love statue for Dr. Tana. And then also when she got um, roped into the um, Starfleet um, special security or whatever they were, special ops um, group where she went on the mission. But like that's not her typical day-to-day duties on the ship. And it just seems like they're having trouble making her fit into the crew when she's in sick bay, because you know, you look at Mariner and Boimler, they're sitting up on the bridge. Um, Rutherford, I'll be curious to see. I mean, I guess you can always just involve him in solving problems from engineering. So there's that. Whereas medical, we haven't had a lot of medical emergencies on Star Trek lower decks. Usually, you know, with uh, TNG, they would find ways to really work in Crusher. Um, I guess maybe this show doesn't have the time. As we've said, it's like a 25 minute episode. Yeah. Um, I, I got to highlight this, but uh, Cetacean Ops, uh, they've hinted mm-hmm. at it uh, coming up to the season. Uh, the subtitles of those uh, uh, little uh, sea creatures cracked me up throughout. Um, let me ask you this. What is the point of having a Cetacean Ops on any given ship, Cam? <laughs> I don't know. And I kind of hope they never tell me because yeah, <laughs> it's okay. somehow funnier. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, it made me think of Darwin from uh, Sequest uh, DSV uh, back in the 90s. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh, good poll. Good poll. I never watched that show. Did you at the time? Oh, yeah. I watched it. I, I, I really liked it. Yeah. Well, it was kind of just Star Trek Underwater, wasn't it? I, I was those are my exact words i was just about to use there but um but but were the were the cetaceans kind of dumb like is that the joke as well i wouldn't i don't know if i'd say they're dumb they're very horny <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. that seemed to be the case hey nothing like saving your friend and going for a skinny uh a skinny dip you know um, <laughs> yeah and like get that bod in the water with us like <laughs> i already asked him maybe you should keep up <laughs> But then it's like, there's only, you know, one way to remove the plates and it's, you know, to pull some switches or whatever underwater and they are not capable of doing it because it doesn't work via flippers. And I'm like, well, what's the point of their little (laughs) tunnel then? (laughs) This seems like a bizarre job for them to be achieving every day. They are commissioned officers in Starfleet. So I'm wondering if it's just kind of uh, an effort to be inclusive within a ship, you know, like uh, maybe charter Mm -hmm. members of Starfleet, not all of them have opposable thumbs, but um they're very intelligent so yeah why not include them uh this way i mean i really suspect in the future we're going to see them serve in some sort of function in a story maybe one episode in a season or something like that will cut to cetacean ops because once you've introduced them why wouldn't you continue to use them in some way because i have a pretty good feeling fans are going to really enjoy them yeah especially if they think uh, they should not let uh, boimler get dry and uh, spray him with water <laughs> like they were really fun I, I thought for throwaway characters who just had you know a couple minutes um they really worked and that's something like lower decks is really good at is just dropping a character in and making them really effective in a very short amount of time all right well okay, maybe uh there's a couple other topics uh that we want to touch on um but any final thoughts on this before uh, we, we kind of maybe compare season one finale versus season two finale no, just overall, this was a really satisfying season finale that left me genuinely excited to see where we go from here. And I think season two, while it was up and down, you know, it's introduced a lot of concepts throughout that really were working their way into this episode. And I look forward to seeing it explored going forward. Like this show is establishing its own mythology and doing interesting things with it. Yeah. Okay. So if we're thinking about no small parts versus first, first contact, uh, first viewing uh, that I had this morning, I was leaning towards no small parts as the better season finale. Um, After second viewing, I I really think it is first, first contact because I was thinking about the big moments in no small parts and it was stuff like, you know, Riker coming to the rescue or it was Shax's death. Mm -hmm. And in retrospect, you know, the stuff that I really liked about this one was more of like kind of the character moments with the people that uh, we care about and that have grown very attached to. And it just, like I said, this seems like the um, truckiest episode yet of this new era. I'm going to give it to First First Contact as the better uh, season finale. Well, I find this tough because, okay, so like you um, cited uh, Redemption early on, and I kind of feel like we got a best of both worlds versus Redemption here where... 
you had small parts, which was like the big explosive episode with Riker appearances and the packlets and all that sort of stuff. So like it was hugely fun and showing me things that I didn't expect to ever see on lower decks. Whereas like in some ways this was a quieter episode. It still had a lot of action, but it was just about dealing with the characters, having some major stakes set up, especially in the cliffhanger there. And I walked away satisfied the way I do after Redemption. But I think no small parts will like just loom larger in my mind because of, you know, Crazy Riker and all that sort of stuff. Okay. Okay. Um, overall, how does season one compare to season two for you? This is difficult because you could almost say they're kind of the same thing <laughs> where they, you know, take some time building up, you know, their, their power over the course of the season. They start kind of bumpy uh, and find their footing. I think this season, though, I'm trying to think here. I think they hit higher. Hmm, did they hit higher highs? I think you would look at the last four or five episodes and say that they're probably stronger than the last four or five of season one. Uh, at least I would say so. And I think earlier on, there were some episodes that jumped out a little more to me. Like I really liked, we'll always have Tom Paris, for example. Um, so I think season two is maybe a hair better, but they're pretty close, pretty close. Yeah, for me, I think season one was just a little bit more consistent from episode one through to episode 10. And uh, guest last week, Scott Hardy, he pointed out that, um, you know, he, he felt a, a sense of disappointment coming into the early parts of season mm -hmm. two. Whereas I started season one and it wasn't like I was disappointed in the first handful of episodes. It's just I was trying to get on the rhythm of the show and there's critiques that I had for it. And once it got going, I, I was like, great they figured it out and then when you get into the the first half of season two i'm just like oh a lot of those same issues that we had uh with season one they haven't really seemed to learn from them and so i i i have this sense of disappointment with season two that has been mostly evaporated by the time we got i think you know from episode seven on they really kind of hit their stride once more maybe even episode six uh the spy humongous um mm -hmm. the packlet spy stuff was pretty hilarious so um Overall, I think I got to give it to season one, um, but I might, look, I, I, here's my debate. Is the back half of season one better than the back half of season two? That's where I, I think the real debate for me is. I, I still think I have to give it to the back half of season one, personally. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to come down on two, because when I look at um, even the early season of two, I have, like, the Tom Paris episode and K-Sean uh, those are to me more successful than like early season one lower decks where it's like every episode is the ship getting invaded by like creatures. Um, and just like they were just frantically uh, racing through episodes. They definitely did that in season two as well. But I just feel like even the lower tier episodes of the season were probably a little more inspired by what we got right out of the gate in season one. Okay. Uh, well, let's jump over to some other topics. Um, Shatner. Uh, <laughs> as we record <laughs> this, uh, he just, uh, reached earth once again after, uh, going out to space. Um, I, I watched, uh, some of the countdown stuff and like, he wasn't like in my head, I, I pictured him being in outer space longer than he was. Yeah. He, he wasn't in space very long, <laughs> but I just, what if you were able to go back in time and approach this, uh, 33 34 year old working actor and tell him look mm -hmm. you're going to do a, a couple years on this uh sci-fi show it'll get canceled uh you'll struggle a little bit and you'll become a cultural icon who eventually is uh orbiting or not he didn't really orbit the earth but uh who uh who breaks uh, the the, uh, the atmosphere and uh, gets into outer space like he would have looked at you like a madman. And it's just kind of like, um, what, what a thrilling journey for him, but just what um, kind of a symbol it is for our own pursuits of kind of just striving to go and uh, explore. You know, I, I thought it was just a very, very cool moment. And also, when you go down a journey of, you know, a pursuit that you're really interested in, you have no idea where it could take you. It's like Shatner loved acting. That's what started this whole journey. And look at what it ultimately led to. And he could never have planned that. And I think that can happen to anyone when they get into, you know, some sort of endeavor that they continue to pursue. They'll find interesting avenues that they never would have anticipated. They may not go to space. Uh, you know, I think you've got to be William Shatner level famous for that to happen. But you just never know. And I think 
you know, this was a pretty cool moment that I, I watched some of the countdown. I also watched when he got down and was um, talking to Bezos and just as expressing how much it meant to him. And just so cool for like, I mean, William Shatner is the oldest man in space. That unto itself is really cool. And it did lead me to wonder, though, what other Star Trek alums uh, they're going to end up sending into space. Because there's there's a few I could definitely see being approached at some point down the road. Do you think they maybe approached Patrick Stewart before they approached uh, William Shatner? I, oh, I think Shatner may. No, I think Shatner would probably be at the top, right? Like he's 90. Okay, okay. He, his time is maybe more limited. Um yeah, I think he would have been first. He is the biggest icon, probably, of the, especially classic Trek. Yeah, and look, uh, like these tickets to space are, are pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shatner ain't paying for this one. I do you think that they paid him at all to do this though? Um, probably. I mean, it's just good for PR, right, to send William Shatner into space. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But I could see like Patrick Stewart being offered the opportunity. Um. I wondered about maybe George Takei at some point, um, but there's definitely some, you know, science fiction stars who, you know, they just may be interested in doing that at some point. Like, would it shock people if Harrison Ford got the offer one day? I don't know. Or uh, Philip Anglum? <laughs> I would die if they sent Philip Anglum into space. Like that would be the, I think I would have to just retire from life because there'd be nothing left for me to see. <laughs> he's, uh, he's with the prophets once more. Vedic Burial, uh is uh, up in the celestial temple. <laughs> and he never comes back. It'd be great if Philip Anglum, well, <laughs> the entire time leading up to it, uh, he doesn't break character. Oh my, yeah, he's wearing the robes and everything. Oh my God, it would be incredible. Uh, he's calling everyone child, my child. <laughs> yes, but it did, It does make me wonder how many celebs are going to get the ticket to go to space now. Because I feel like Shatner was kind of the test run for this. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Uh, okay, uh, so maybe we have a little bit of spoilers to discuss after New York Comic Con. As always, the timing is all, doesn't work out for us when we record on Thursdays and all the news seems to break on uh, Fridays or over the weekend, but uh, New York Comic Con happened. And uh, yeah, so you've been spoiler warned, turn it off or jump ahead a few minutes uh, to find out what we're talking about uh, next week. Anyways, uh, we did discover that hmm. uh, one Chakotay We'll be returning uh, to Star Trek with uh, one Kate Mulgrew for uh, Star Trek Prodigy. Uh, it's interesting. We've had Seven of Nine, Tom Paris, uh, Chakotay, uh, Janeway. That, that, that's almost half the cast. Yeah. I kind of, I, I think I really underestimate how popular Voyager is within the fandom. Uh, we know that they're doing that documentary and that broke the um, GoFundMe record. I think it was GoFundMe. But that broke the record uh, that Deep Space Nine previously held as well. Like, Voyager is very popular, and I'm honestly, honestly curious what what the Chakotay character is up to. You know, 20 years later. Well, do you remember that study a while back? And I don't know how accurate it was, but they revealed that like Voyager episodes were the most rewatched of any Star Trek series. I, I kind of scratched my head at that. I, I guess I got to take them at my at their word, but I don't know the, the, how they showcase metrics are, are always like yeah. You know, like the thing is, like with Netflix, it's like uh, one view equals at least two minutes of somebody tuning in. Like mm-hmm. that doesn't make sense, you know. So I like, but I know what you're saying. It, it does. It's not the only sign that there is a, a big, big love for Star Trek Voyager out there. Yeah. But as for Chakotay, I just think this is really exciting. I hope they give him interesting things to do because Chakotay was a character who I think had a lot going for him going into Voyager. And he has episodes. We've talked about them to death, you know, in two-parters and things like that, where suddenly Chakotay comes to life. And I kind of like the idea of several years after Voyager's gone off the air, you have writers who hopefully were big Voyager fans who would actually genuinely like to write for Chakotay. And let's see what they can do. Because it was very clear that the writers of Voyager didn't really care about writing for Chakotay at a certain point. So what happens when fans of the character actually tackle him? We may get something genuinely cool. And I can't wait to see it. I am surprised, though, that, um, you know, as you said, like a lot of Voyager characters um, are coming back. And I kind of always expected the Doctor to be the first one. (laughs) 
didn't he say that he's coming on that like he was in negotiations for star trek picard and he said that even before season one premiere well he did but he was actually in the running for the borg queen casting oh okay okay gotcha i'd be shocked if uh, robert picardo does not somehow make an appearance whether animated or live action form Mm -hmm. uh i don't i don't see jennifer lean coming back as Cass. i'm just like you can go google her history um you know ethan phillips uh as neelix perhaps and um, would roxanne dawson ever consider it live action or or animation well she's a very uh busy working director but I think they might get her for like a brief appearance or something. I could, I could see that. How interested do you think she is, though? I don't think she's sitting by the phone. <laughs> but I think if maybe yeah. she gets contacted about it, maybe if it's like a fun bit for her to do, it would interest her enough to, you know, it, I'm thinking honestly, like more like Lower Decks. I could see her recording a, a yeah. cameo on Lower Decks. I just don't see her popping up on Picard. I bring it up because, like, folks out there, they might not have seen her in many acting roles over the last 20 years, but she is an incredibly prolific television director. And I'm not talking, you know, kind of like, um, you know, like network TV, this is us stuff. We're, we're talking about, like, prestige HBO dramas, like that sort of stuff. Like, she and uh, she's even directed feature films. I don't think uh, it was a very well-reviewed <laughs> film, but um, she, she is in high demand. And I just wonder if uh, she she might like going to conventions to see friends, but I don't know how much she wants to return to the, the Torres character, but maybe she does. Maybe it'd just be fun if all her friends are doing it as well. I think they could find a fun way to do it, especially if we get Tom Paris back on Lower Decks, like bring back Balana with him. I think that could be pretty okay. fun. Um, what about Harry Kim? Where will we see Harry Kim? I I think they need to do right by Harry Kim somehow. Like, you know, it, I would prefer to see him on something like Picard in which he is a Starfleet captain. You know, mm-hmm. like they, they have to give it to him at this point. It just kind of seems mean. <laughs> they kept him an ensign like for like seven <laughs> seasons. And, you know, Garrett Wong has, has spoken about how... Um, you know, just with the, the the producers, like there are comments made about uh, his weight uh, as well as Robert Duncan McNeil's weight as these guys went from folks in their 20s to actors in their 30s. And um, I, I think there's some tension between the writing staff and some of the actors on that show. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why, you know, maybe um, we've also heard about uh, uh, Garrett Wong's hard partying days uh, back then as well. And I, I just wonder if they, they kind of took it out on the character in a way that was meant to be directed at the actor instead. And I, I just wish that they gave uh, th- this character kind of a legacy that he deserves moving forward. And, and I'd rather see that in live action versus in lower decks personally. Yeah. I mean, I would like to see it in live action as well, but I feel like lower decks is probably more likely or on prodigy. Um, but you know, like you've got, you know, I now, um, captain gomez so like i i don't think it's out of the realm of possibility that we get um captain kim at some point showing up i just i just i would like to see it in live action like i said i just really suspect it's going to be an animation yeah honestly uh, uh the only voyager character i'm not all that curious about uh returning is tuvok like I, mm. I i don't think he's in starfleet i think he's just chilling with his family on vulcan and I don't know how well it lends itself to something of, of much intrigue or drama. Uh, he was rarely the center of you know interpersonal drama during the show. Um, it, it's fascinating if you go back and watch the Caretaker finale, or I'm sorry, the Caretaker series premiere. He was clearly being set up to be like uh, like kind of the uh, number two, number three on uh, the billing there. And I just don't know what happened. Uh, it's like he he was a pretty good character to kick it off. And um, I'm, I'm just not that curious about him. I, I'm much more curious about what Neelix is doing on that asteroid colony uh, in, in the Delta Quadrant at this point. <laughs> yeah, Tuvox one, it's a little tough. Uh, they didn't give us a lot of him in Voyager that was at least compelling to me. There's the odd episode. I like Meld, but by and large, he's not the most dynamic character. I, he's one I just wonder if we get maybe a bit part you know just like maybe like a fun memorable bit part on a lower decks or some sort of appearance on prodigy i don't know how much prodigy is going to double down on voyager casting or wants to spread the wealth around in terms of working in you know tng or ds9 actors as well um so far it seems more voyager driven but i I could see tuvok winding up on that in some way 
I don't know about bit part because what we've learned from lower decks though, Cam, is that there are no small parts. So um, mm, the excellent point. Other th- <laughs> the other thing that uh, we'd like to discuss is the uh, full length Star Trek Discovery season four trailer. Yeah, um, Cam, <laughs> it's I think everything we were fearing. It does not fill us with anticipation for the season to come. I guess you know Lenny Kravitz. Uh, he could have been used for this one. Uh, this looks terrible. This looks absolutely awful. It is yet another sort of, you know, end of the universe scenario that the crew is going to have to deal with. And uh, I've got a quote from Sonequa Martin-Green over from New York Comic Con. And uh, here it goes, Cam. Let let me know what you think of this. Um, Okay. I haven't read it, so I'm actually excited to hear this. (laughs) I know, at least for Burnham, it's a lot. Like, man... Here we are again with a threat of great, great magnitude. Like, yes, Cam, here we are again. I'm just like, <laughs> they just keep repeating themselves. I'm just like, I, 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 some gravitational anomaly. It's going to threaten, uh, you know, existence as we know it. The other thing I, I'm kind of realizing is we were like, okay, so what does being a captain mean for uh, Burnham moving forward? Like before she had to be the insubordinate officer um, towards her own commanders What's it going to be like for her having to deal with people that want to be insubordinate? And I realize, Cam, nothing is going to change for this character. She's going to continue being insubordinate, but as the captain towards, you know, the admirals. Because as we learned from Star Trek, she's not the only captain to be insubordinate. Uh, but we, what we know from Star Trek is the captains always know best. And what we know from Discovery is no matter what all the information tells us, Burnham just always knows best, Cam. Burnham knows best. You better listen to her because she'll always be validated in the end. And I just... I'm, uh, this is a character who I really liked in season one, and I don't know what happened to her uh, beginning in season two. They they kind of turned her into a different character from uh, season two, episode one onwards, and I'm kind of bummed out about that, and I'm not looking forward to season four. I, uh, yeah, this trailer was rough. Uh, it, it's, you know, I, I genuinely thought when we saw the teaser and it was like another anomaly, I'm like, uh-huh, this does not, like, there's no hook to this whatsoever. The one little takeaway I had from watching the full-length trailer is I wonder if they're just hiding something really, really major and they're just showing us the very basic setup. Like, you know, you've seen sometimes movie trailers where you go like, what are they selling? This seems so like, so basic. And then you watch the movie and they've clearly been hiding half the movie. I'm hoping that's the case. And this whole setup of a anomaly that they have to solve is literally just like a opening the doors to something that we could not anticipate based on everything you knew about i know these producers cam do you think um that's what it is no i i don't I but i i want to be hopeful <laughs> that that's the case because i just don't understand how you're looking at this trailer if you're that if you're you know the the company that makes star trek going home run guys home run <laughs> i just can't remember we saw the trailer for season three and they're like, what is the burn? And then yeah. you joked about how it'd be the new mystery. And yeah. you said it as a joke. And it became what reality was. And it turned out to be even worse than your joke. And that the big mystery was Radioactive Man Boy. And it was just like, I, I just don't have any faith for them to stick the landing at all. Especially, like, these mysteries aren't good. Like, uh, Discovery has never lent itself to, you know, sticking the landing when it comes to interesting or compelling mysteries throughout and the payoffs have never been good. And I am very fearful. Um, we've said it a couple times over um, you know, uh, the last few months, but we're not sure we'll review it week to week because I don't know how fun it is for listeners who are tuning into a show because they want to hear thoughts because they're enjoying watching a show just to listen to the hosts like just bash the show like yeah. at week in, week out. So I think you know we've discussed it. We'll, we'll definitely do the season premiere. And maybe wait, we'll see how it goes from there, but maybe we just tune in uh, every every three weeks. We'll do like a batch of episodes that we review and uh, kind of go into there. Because I think I want to discuss my thoughts. I just I just don't want to put myself through as much pain as I did last season of Discovery. Yeah, and the problem is like Discovery season three, at least to me, wasn't bad in interesting ways where you could, to, you know, you know, jump on the podcast and every week would be like a new exploration as to like, what went wrong here? This is really interesting. It was kind of just hitting the same bad beats over and over where you go, yep, once again, they did this, 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 and this. And it would just kind of repeat itself. And it just gets repetitive to have to do week to week. So I, I just yeah. hope that's not the case this time. I, 
I want to be hopeful that they're going to figure it out. Although there was a YouTube comment that did make me laugh on the trailer. And it just said, I can't wait to see how this anomaly is different than the anomaly in season three or the anomaly in season two. (laughs) (laughs) Kim, are are you now officially looking forward to uh, the anomaly of season five? Yeah, no kidding. Um, I guess we should touch on, though, the Ferengi redesign we saw in the trailer. That's something. Yeah, that's something. Uh, like it's not as over designed as the Klingon stuff, but it's still to me over designed. Like you take a very simple sort of concept that looked awesome, you know, 30, 35 years ago now at this point, And I just like, you're giving these weird curves and wrinkles and stuff. And I'm just like, no, just go with Ferengi classic. Like the, the, the Tellarite redesign and the Andorian redesign doesn't bother me so much. I, I actually mm-hmm. think that the Andorian and, and Tellarites were kind of perfected back on Enterprise, but I'm okay with what they did here on Discovery. But the Ferengi, the Klingons, you're taking a step too far. Thankfully, we we only saw the uh, the Cardassians last season in the backgrounds. Um, they kind of seem to look, have the same look, but hopefully they retain that if we get to see more Cardassians, or at least more than just uh, people that are partially Cardassian moving forward in season uh, four. So, I don't know. What's your take on uh, the new look of the Ferengi here? I try not to be precious, because I think back to if I was a Star Trek fan in 1979 showing up to watch the motion picture and seeing the Klingons, like, would I be throwing a fit being like, those are not the Klingons that I watched on Star Trek. I don't know what those were. So I'm open to seeing what they do with the Ferengi. I thought it was a weird design. Like just some of the choices, as you said, um, when you have sort of this like rounded elegance to the design and it's very simple, it doesn't make a lot of sense to over design it. It feels like that school of kind of creature design that was going on Cloverfield and post Cloverfield, where every time they designed a monster, it was kind of a mess. You couldn't possibly, you know, replicate if you had to draw it, if someone asked you to after watching the movie. That's what I feel like with some of these Discovery Alien redesigns, where it's like, I I don't know that I could draw a Discovery Klingon if you asked me to. I could probably draw a TNG one, though. Um, So I don't, I'm open to it. Honestly, at this point, I'm willing to push the visuals aside, and I'm just really curious how they portray the Ferengi. If that feels weird. Yeah, because if it's a Ferengi and Starfleet, they're going to be more like Nog than, say, Quark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. But honestly, this could just be like a background like, yep. player, you know, like somebody with no significance, you know, so... Uh, look, I look. I don't want to go into Discovery Season 4 with my mind made up. I will go in with an open mind. But as you say, Cam, if they keep hitting the same beats and keep making the same mistakes, I just don't know how much more slack I can give the series moving forward. That's all. Yeah. No, I'm in the same boat. It's just weird how we, we're... <laughs> mostly like uh very very encouraged by the direction of discovery you know first two seasons and it just took one really bad season for us to just kind of get like turned off it because i think it just accentuated some of the um the problems that previously existed in the first two seasons but it it just like really really brought us to the forefront and didn't do anything to fix those problems yeah it really put them on the forefront and the problem for me with season four is, and like I'm with you, I don't want to judge the whole season based on a trailer because there's lots of good yeah. movies that have bad trailers. And, uh, you know, you don't like to just judge them off the two minutes. But the problem for me is that everything they're marketing as a hook for me to watch their latest season is reflecting the problems I had with season three. It's not like showing me something completely different where maybe those same problems still exist. It's showing me almost the exact same thing. And that I find frustrating. Yeah. Well, so uh, listeners look forward to our thoughts on Star Trek (laughs) Discovery season four premiere coming in November. (laughs) Okay. So on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. Let us know what you thought of the lower decks season two finale. We'd love to hear from you. Okay, Tyler, what are we doing next time? Yeah, you know what? It's been a while since we got to do one of our classic episode reviews, so we will be returning to Star Trek Enterprise. We're going to do the episode E-Squared. I'm looking forward to that quite a bit. It is one of my favorites from the series and often overlooked, so uh, that'll be fun. And then 
after that, we're going to be jumping into the season premiere of Star Trek Prodigy, and then we'll have to decide how we want to tackle Prodigy, whether we do that week to week, or maybe if a kid's show, maybe it lends itself to doing reviews every two or three weeks instead. Yeah, I guess the um, the premiere will dictate the direction of the show going forward, yeah. And who knows, you know we'll be watching it week to week, even if we're not doing reviews week to week. So um, maybe we do like 15-minute segments at the end of our kind of uh, go-to classic kind of episodes. Or, you know, maybe the show blows us away by the time we get to episode 8 and we feel compelled to do, you know, uh, weekly episode reviews uh, moving forward. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. The sky's the limit. And Prodigy feels like one of the more unknown quantities in new trek like i think with lower decks we had a sense of what we were getting picard and discovery we had a sense this one i really don't i, I don't know what to expect at all uh yeah so uh, or i think you meant to say the blue skies the limit camp oh yes yes of course blue skies um you can of course find us on the twitter i'm at cam v is in very happy to see manual steering back on star trek smith you can find me at Reporton, and that's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N-N, as in no small parts, still pretty good. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. I'm a rocket it's man, rocket man, burning out his fuse out here alone. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. And I think it's going to be... Long, long time. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. Transfer complete.